Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Danya Shakfe. Danya, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, Danya is an attorney, and so she's with me today to share some insights. And in particular, she's an attorney, but she specializes in particular in mergers and acquisitions. So she's going to share some general guidelines, legal perspectives, kind of insights, experiences from a legal perspective as it relates to buying or selling a business. We'll probably focus on it a little bit more from the buying side, but we'll kind of try to go back and forth from both perspectives both perspectives rather, but we're going to discuss what are those, so those legal considerations that apply when we're buying and selling a business. We've talked a lot about on this show and I've had lots of guests talking about the business side of that, the transactional side of that, the due diligence side of that, but from a legal perspective, what are those things that we should look for and hopefully avoid some of the common mistakes that a lot of people make Uh, To get more information about the Howa business, including the show notes page for this episode, and to learn more about my one-on-one coaching and group coaching programs, please visit thehowabusiness.com. I also encourage you to please subscribe wherever you might be listening to this show so that you don't miss any future episodes. So let me tell you a little bit more about Danya. Danya Shakfe is a uh, business law attorney and the founding attorney of Motiva Business Law which is based uh, in Oak Brook, Illinois, but they also have an office in Tampa, Florida. And very succinctly, she helps clients get deals done so they can focus on their dreams of business ownership or of having realized an exit of their business. And so her practice focuses on mergers and acquisitions, franchise law, contracts, and corporate startups. Danya, once again, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me once again. Thank you. Absolutely. So um, we'll jump right into it. But before I do so, let's just do a quick legal disclaimer. I'll, I'll, I'll share the disclaimer here and then you can add whatever I'm missing there. Uh, Danya is an attorney, but she's not your attorney. And yeah. so we're just going to share general guidelines here, best practices, principles, you know, experiences, but everybody listening should get their own legal counsel before you take any actions related to anything that we talk about. Anything that you would add to that, Danya? That was perfect. Excellent. All right. So let's, having said that, let's dive into it. I want to kind of walk through the process, I thought, and that'll then kind of spawn questions and go off on it. So I kind of laid out in my notes, as, as you probably can see, what I typically think of or what I typically follow as the high level steps in the process of buying or selling a business. You know, initially it's that exploration, that research. Um, that then when we've got a business that we're interested in, typically I've found that people want you to sign an NDA, right? Yeah. Yeah. Especially because the seller is uh, is going to be sharing some pretty uh, sensitive information. Um, in particular, finances is something that they really want to keep secret. So that's uh, why they want buyers to sign an NDA. Uh, often from, if I'm looking at it from their perspective, buyer's uh, view, what should I look for? What 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 are some cautions there that I should and have my attorney look at before I sign an NDA? That's a great question. Um, I think one misconception about NDAs in general is that they are just a template and they're all the same. But I've reviewed 
so many NDAs and I've never seen two are, that are the same. So definitely people should be a little bit cautious, especially if there's a lot of uh, sensitive information being shared. But probably the biggest thing that a buyer should look out for is to make sure that the NDA is not overly broad and does not put too much burden on the buyer to hold information or the consequences of learning information. So for example, anything that, you know, like, so if the buyer learns of, or like if they have access to financial documents and they're expected to hold them for three years or, and then, so this is like this really long time period where the buyer could be responsible for any potential claims. Um, so that's one uh, issue that I see. And then also like so much liability, like if the buyer breaches, uh, you know, then the seller has like so many remedies, probably remedies beyond what is expected in that um, time period. See. And then also I've seen sometimes NDAs, especially if people use templates, is that the NDAs start to cover other aspects of the deal. Mm, okay. Um, and so you don't want it. So you want to make sure that whatever you're being as a buyer, like whatever you're being exposed to, or excuse me, that the NDA is going to be limited to whatever you as a buyer is exposed to. There's no other mm. obligations or, uh, you know, liabilities. So those are probably the biggest issues I would look for on the buy side. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So not too broad, uh, some, some time specificity to it, some term to it. Those kind right. of things are critical. You know, I, I reminds me, I, I was presented with an NDA once years ago. I was evaluating a potential franchise and mm -hmm. the franchisor, I still am amazed by it. I, I don't even know if it was legal, but none, of course, <laughs> shall not be named. But yeah. in there was a stipulation that I was agreeing not to consider any other franchise competitors. Yeah. And that was, again, don't know if it was legal. We're not going to make that judgment here, but but that was an example where uh, that would have really restricted me then to not be able to consider yeah. any other franchise. And I wasn't even anywhere near to making a decision on this particular franchise. Yeah. So that's them kind of sneaking in like a non-compete mm -hmm. in the NDA. You Correct. really just wanted yeah. to make sure it's a non-disclosure and that's it and nothing else. Yeah. Absolutely. Don't know how enforceable it would have been, example. but nonetheless, those are kind of things. <laughs> All right. So then as we begin to do our research, our review, typically where we focus is on the financial side, analyzing the business operations. You know, what do the sales numbers look like? Who's the clientele? What are they selling? From a legal perspective, what are the things that early in the process maybe I should start thinking about? Probably this, the structure of the deal, which could vary, um, you know, later on. But you want to know early on if it's going to be an asset sale or a stock sale, because that's also going to... Um, that is going to guide your due diligence. Um, if you know that, um, you know, as a buyer, you will be buying the stock, for example, then you want to make sure that you know of all potential liabilities of the actual entity. Whereas in an asset deal, those are not uh, necessarily uh, going to be in play. Another aspect, which may be overlooked, we actually had this issue in um, in a recent deal is you want to make sure that those the sellers who are selling the business have the consent of all of the people that mm -hmm. need to give their consent. We were in a situation recently where there was like a surprise business partner um, at the 11th hour before closing and we had to stop the deal because now this this like surprise business partner was claiming that they have to also have a say in the transaction, even though as the buyers, we did the due diligence, but the seller was 
not very transparent um, on that respect. So just get really clear about all the parties, um, you know, check out the operating agreements and make sure that that's not going to be an issue later on. So those early on are, are the things that I would, um, you know, uh, look to at first from a legal and then, oh, and then also any contracts. And the reason why that's important is because the contracts are going to signal the revenue and the liabilities of the business. So especially in a referral-based business where there are contracts or, or excuse me, contracts involved, you want to make sure that those contracts are transferable to a buyer. Mm -hmm. And so those are probably the biggest three things that I would see. Yeah. I, I want to come, I want to come back to the point because I was just giving this thought with a, a client of mine who's looking to buy a yeah. business is that that point of who has the authority to execute mm -hmm. the sale and is everybody involved. So so the only thing that I would know to do, as you're alluding to, is to review or have my attorney review the yeah. the current partnership agreement or operating agreement to see who are the owners, right? So what we do sometimes too is we check with the Secretary of State. Um, that's but but that varies from state to state because so if you see a name on the papers that that are publicly available, and again, um, it's not always the case with each state. Right. Um, that helps us to to see uh like to see if a seller is providing all of the information that they should. Um, so in this case, we actually did see an operating agreement, but apparently it wasn't the latest version. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, so, I mean, in our practice now, I mean, so even online, like there was no indication that this, um, you know, business partner was existent. So, um, and then sometimes maybe just doing a Google search and going on mm -hmm. LinkedIn and see if there are any potential people pretending that they own the business, um, just to kind of cross check to the extent that you can. I mean, you know, sometimes if someone or if a seller is not being transparent, there's only so much you can do, but at least right. the buyer has done their due diligence. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, the other thing is, is the, just your good old fashioned asking questions. You know, I always like to ask on your process. So who will be involved in this decision process? And then I'll ask it multiple ways if I yeah. think, if I'm suspicious, right? Mm -hmm. and, and eventually, we'll, yeah, you know, there's there's Jamie, but he's not involved in day-to-day, -day, so he'll be fine with it. Well, that's a yeah. yellow flag, right? Yes, yeah, <laughs> that's a yellow flag, yes. Yeah. And sometimes it could actually be the opposite. We've, um, like, we've had deals where as we dug into it and the documents, we saw that, that a party business partner or whomever did not necessarily need to consent, which actually makes things easier for us. So it's always sure. good to know, you know, on both ends so that you don't have any like people who are claiming rights that they really don't have, you know, a right, right. to. Going back to the asset versus legal entity purchase or versus stock purchase or unit purchase in my experience, and I've done both, <laughs> but okay. my uh, mode of thinking is that it, it is usually disadvantageous to a buyer to purchase the legal entity as opposed to just buying the assets. Is that generally true? Yeah. So we have an expression that the buyers buy assets and the sellers sell stock. We can't have it both ways, obviously, no, in the same exactly. transaction. And therein lies the negotiation and the conflict, right? They were trying <laughs> yeah. to settle and yeah. agree to. Yep. But, uh, but that's kind of where, um, yeah. So, I mean, in general, yeah. So buyers um, want to buy assets because of the liability not transferring but there are situations especially if we find that those referral contracts can't transfer to a new mm -hmm. buyer or there are certain limitations then maybe a stock sale would actually be a, like, advantageous because you don't have to worry about the contracts being transferred to the buyer and i mean that yeah, could apply then, to a vendor relationship let's say i have a relationship yeah. with a large retailer 
um, mm-hmm. if there is a change of ownership that may have to start all over again, right? Yeah. Uh, now yeah. there could be clauses in that contract that would trigger it anyway, but those are another example where it might be beneficial. But this liability mm-hmm. point is the big one, is my understanding right. that if I buy the legal entity and three years ago there was an unsettled matter that wasn't disclosed or uncovered, that becomes mine. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So if there's any, um, like government compliance issues too, that might be another big one. Taxes, um, um, you know, that's another big one too. So definitely, I mean, ideally the buyers do not want to take over the past liability because um, even with due diligence, you just never know what's going to pop up. From a governmental perspective though, if that previous seller, let's say it turns out hadn't paid their payroll taxes and we did not uncover that, but I only buy the assets, am I still exposed? to potentially being yes. liable for that? Yes, because the government will always find a way to get their taxes. Yeah. <laughs> so so there's no escaping well, that probably. There's no escaping the taxes. That's what I figured. But uh, yeah, so basically the if there's any liens or, or the government actually will also attach the taxes to the assets being transferred. Right. And that's why it's important for a buyer to do a bulk sales notice and actually get a clearance from the Department of Revenue um, you know, in their state to make sure that that's not um, an issue. And that's something that's really overlooked by a lot of buyers because mm-hmm. they don't, uh, because they automatically assume, well, I'm not buying the assets, so right. the taxes don't transfer, but that is something that needs to be done um, in analysis. So. so it sounds like that's that's kind of very similar or equivalent to what I might do when I buy a piece of real estate where I, there's a title search to make sure that yes. title can transfer cleanly. There's no cloud on the title. Similarly exactly. here, yeah. I got to make sure there's no liens or any other demands on these assets. Yep. Yep. Definitely. Yeah. Um, similarly, I was thinking that, you know, most states have a workforce commission and if, uh, that seller has an issue or hasn't paid into that, that's another entity that could say, well, they're your employees now. So you have now incurred that liability. Is that generally true? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know if it varies from state to state, but in Illinois, we, for the most part that, uh, that will cover both like in our department mm-hmm. of revenue. What is it that then my attorney at a high level is going to do for me here in this area of that uh, exploration of that uh, research to make sure that as far as we can tell, there aren't any of these potential liabilities? Right, that's correct. Yeah. Well, okay. So first and foremost, you want to explain to the parties exactly what the process is to get clearance on this. So um, because I think, too, what maybe a lot of sellers don't realize is that when a buyer can check with either Department of Labor or, or, or like the Department of Revenue or if there are any county requirements or that involve book sale notice as well, is that that they might issue a letter to hold some of the purchase price sure. in an escrow. And so, of course, that's going to disappoint some of the sellers, but they need to kind of be prepared for that. And so an escrow agreement should also be prepared in that event. But you want to make sure, basically, the summary is you don't always rely on the seller themselves to tell you what their liabilities are. Like Your lawyer should find out on their own from the horse's mouth, which in this case is the government or whatever department, mm-hmm. the seller is up to date on their taxes yeah. um, and other liabilities. So if the seller says, no, we don't have any lawsuits, well, you want to go check you know, all the public records involving lawsuits and making sure that's actually the case. And that is a perfect example of why it makes sense to engage your attorney or an attorney right. 
to help us with this step of the process as we're mm-hmm. vetting a business. Going back to the escrow thing, I've I've done that most recently, and and, and these I typically see this in larger sales, whatever that means, right? But mm-hmm. uh, we had a situation where we sold the business and. X percentage, I think it was 3% of the deal was held back for three years for those same things. Anything that we have might've misstated or that was missed or any kind of liability issues. And then that money was released to us back after the three years. So common, common practice there. Yeah. Yeah. So like for, so that's like a holdback, which is a little bit different than the tax because the tax usually is cleared um, because what often happens is that if the sale the business happens sort of in the middle of a quarter, um, then could just be a matter of the seller not having paid the taxes because it was not due, not because that they're in breach of anything or they don't owe the taxes. Um, And then like within maybe a few weeks or maybe a couple of months, like those funds can be released. But, but yeah, there is a deal where you have a lot of liability or there's a lot of risk involved that the holdback clause is a really good tool to keep some of the funds to protect the buyer. And so that the buyer does not actually have to go and sell. It's kind of like a self-executing, uh, right. Instead of having go sue, I apologize. Exactly. Instead of having uh, to go yeah. back after the seller yeah. after the fact, yeah. which, you know, who knows where they are, what money they have exactly. or don't have. And so you could get yeah. nothing in that case. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yes. You were also talking about, you know, what I have called and we'll get to the the uh, purchase contract in a moment, but reconciliations. Yeah. Right. So, yes, uh, you were, you're going to agree, hopefully, as a clause in the contract to reconcile those expenses as of the mm-hmm. date of closing. Yeah. Yes. Okay, but before we get there, what else? What else in the legal due diligence side? So if we're looking at the time frame, I'm a buyer, you know, I've signed that NDA, I've been given access to all the financials, I've engaged my attorney to do this other due diligence. Is there anything else kind of at a high level that that you see people will miss or that is another thing that an attorney can help with on the legal due diligence side? On the legal due diligence, um. No, I think that's pretty much it. Just the okay. contract um, and compliance as well. Like if there are any uh, licenses that are required by um, the seller uh, and you want to make sure that they've been compliant mm-hmm. and at least the buyer. So sometimes certain, for example, uh, if you have a liquor license, that's attached to the individual, not so the business, at least here in Illinois. Right. So the buyer has to go make sure that they comply. So those are the mm-hmm. biggest issues I would see. Yeah. Yeah. It's licenses is a big one. Like I, I bought an existing salon suite business in Texas and, and as in most States, at least in Texas, mm-hmm. the salon itself has to have a license. And, and if they had any kind of issues with performance or violations, it probably would have created a problem for me to get my license because it's by the location, right? Yeah. Um, so those are things that we had to look into to make sure that that salon license was in good standing. Yeah. I think one thing that comes to mind too, um, still like related to compliance is like environmental. So if you have like a car wash, mm-hmm. um, which is or a business anything, I was in. you know, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, it involves waste. Um, you want to make sure that the seller was compliant, not just from a legal perspective too, strictly, but also the buyer will know, for example, if a car wash is built properly and that it has the ability to, to comply because you are buying that asset. And so if there's like pipes that are not done correctly or what have you, then that's also um, you know an indication as to the value of the assets and any potential liabilities that would get passed on to the buyer. 
and there's things that could come into play there where the previous owner might've been grandfathered because the rules or the code changed, but now I trigger that again by buying that asset, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, We had that issue too. (laughs) Yeah. That happens. Those are fun. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. This is Henry Lopez briefly pausing this episode to invite you to join me for one of my next live online workshops. During these interactive workshops, I cover a specific topic that will help you with starting and growing your small business. Just visit thehowofbusiness.com to learn more and to register. If you need help creating an effective business plan, for example, to start your first small business, then my next business plan workshop may be just what you need. Or perhaps you need help completing your financial projections for your new business. Well, I have a workshop for that too. And if you're already operating your business, then you can probably benefit from learning how to better manage the cash in your business by attending my cash flow management online workshop. These are just a few of the workshops that I currently offer, and I keep these workshops to a small number of participants so that we have the time to answer all of your questions. Whether it's getting started with your first business or growing and exiting your existing small business, I can help you get there with one of my online workshops. To find out more and to register for a live online workshop, please visit thehowofbusiness.com. Take that next step today towards finally realizing your business ownership dreams. I look forward to having you join me for my next workshop. So the other thing, let's get to now, you know, we've agreed, everything looks good. We've negotiated in general terms. It's time to put together a purchase contract. And unfortunately, it's it's often, especially with small businesses, yeah. where I see people hesitate wanting to go hire an attorney to do this yeah. against my advice. But yeah, um, just give us the lecture here. Why is it so important to have a properly drafted purchase contract? And for me as the buyer, if we continue in that role, my attorney should review it before I sign it. Yeah, so that's a great, uh, yeah, something definitely overlooked by especially smaller businesses. Um, well, first of all, kind of going back to the asset or stock sale, sometimes um, purchase agreement actually doesn't even specify what kind of deal it is, just that they're buying the business because mm-hmm. people don't necessarily, you know, like a lay person may not know that there's even a difference. They just think, oh, they're buying a business. Right. Um, and so that's one thing you want to be clear as to what you're buying. If it's an asset sale, you want to make sure that it's really clear what assets are being purchased. Um, but the key here that I find that's overlooked specifically um, is that you want to really use the due diligence um, to help you draft a proper purchase agreement and to put in the light or excuse me, like to put in the proper indemnifications and representations um, and warranties um, so that if there's ever a breach or there's ever a problem, you are, as a buyer, have more um, like remedies because mm-hmm. it was spelled out in the contract. You don't, as a buyer, want to rely on due diligence to come um, to make a claim against a seller later on because, if anything, it would just be used against you in court because the you know right. because the court would probably look at the buyer and say well you knew it but you didn't really yeah you you had every opportunity to, to uncover you bought this as yeah. is but we're not buying yeah. it as is we're expressing further exactly. uh warranties and and, and remedies beyond the due yeah. diligence yeah yes and i think also a lot of the buyers um who don't use a lawyer don't know all of the options that they have that they could 
put into a purchase agreement. Uh, they think, oh, it's boilerplate, it's standard. Um, I can't really change much anyway. But a holdback clause is a great tool that a lot of buyers don't use when they could to protect themselves. I don't think people realize that that, that that's an option. That you can do that. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I think yeah. people feel like maybe there's laws that govern this as long as it's not an illegal transaction. Yep. Really, it's up to the imagination of buyer and seller if you agree to it and it's a legal thing that we can do, right? I mean, yep, 100%. there's no limitation on how we can arrange this, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yep, 100%. The transition period is often something I also include in the contract. In other words, how long and specifically how the previous owner will help us in the transition period. So you're going to be on site every day at our request uh, for the first month, then the second month, once a week and so forth. I usually like to spell that out in the contract. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really important, Um, especially sometimes like we had um, a deal once where it wasn't just or the seller, so it was an asset sale and the seller was keeping part of the business. And so it was the seller himself. And also sometimes he was lending his employees to help with the transition as well. And so you want to get real clear on on how, if the seller is even being paid, because sometimes that labor in the transition period is sort of like rolled into um, the purchase price, right. but if you have other people or like employees involved, you want to make sure and be clear on who's responsible for paying those employees mm-hmm. and their taxes and so forth. So absolutely. I do have, like, we have a transitional agreement that we put in there as well. Excellent. How about non-competes? You know, I usually will, again, if I'm the buyer and now I'm the seller, I have a different perspective, right? I want to limit that non-compete or have it phase out. But non-compete is something that I usually like to have in there as well, right? Yeah. So, you know, obviously the seller has built a business that is presumably um, a success. And so the last thing that a buyer wants to do is that the seller uh, sets up shop across the street with all mm-hmm. their skills right. um, that would be, you know, in competition. So having a like a non-compete for the buyer is is a great tool to protect themselves. It's also really important to, I always like to ask to if a seller is going to be moving or if they're going to stay in the area. Mm, interesting. And it's nice to know what they're going to be doing after the sale. And so that way you can uncover yellow flags too. If they say, well, um, I want to stay in the area and start another business. Well, what kind of business? Because even if the parties sign the non-compete, it doesn't mean that the seller will, um, you know, actually abide. So it's kind of good to really just ensure it's good to know what everyone's goals are um, so that you can determine the likelihood of a breach. Um, yeah. So, cause we've seen these, that too. These types of non-competes, as long as they're properly defined by an attorney, yeah. they are generally yeah. enforceable, correct? Yeah. So there is a general trend in a lot of states, but really in Illinois, not so much Florida, but in Illinois and even at a federal level, non-competes are becoming non-enforceable or harder to enforce, but really specifically in the employer-employee relationship. That's what I thought. Yeah. And yeah, but but when you sell a business, it's not in that realm of non-competes mm. because there is consideration. And it's not, I mean, it's a different relationship. Yeah, there's and consideration. So and of, I'm not saying you yeah. can't go make a living. You just can't make exactly. a living doing the same thing down the street. Exactly. And plus, like, the buyer is, like, buying the goodwill. That's part of the exactly. assets of the business. And so if the seller just goes and, and just recreates the business across the street, then the buyer isn't, I mean, the buyer is not, like, getting the value of what he or she paid for. Yeah. 
All right, I want to go. I want to come back to something that's not as much of a legal, but I'd like to get since you've done so many of these, kind of your perspective. One of the things that's always tricky, both from the seller and the buyer, mm-hmm. is do we keep this secret to our staff, to our customers, to you know every? Do we keep this secret as long as possible, or do we make it transparent? I, in my in my experience, it just depends on the business, the type of business. But but what are some best practices or things for us to think about there as it comes to that point? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You're right. I think it is case by case, not only by the business itself, but the employees that you're exposing this information to. Um, I think more lower level employees probably would freak out knowing that Mm -hmm. a business is going to be sold. I think the minute someone thinks mergers, acquisitions, the next thing that comes to mind is layoff. Yeah, my my job's going to go away. I'm redundant. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. There's going to be someone else take my place or my place is going to be redundant. But on the other hand, um, you know, a truly ethical, I think, seller would care enough about their employees that they want to give them enough notice because this is their livelihood. So it is like a delicate balance of trying to um, be a kind person and not like hurt your employees and fire them like the day after closing without any knowledge. But also you don't want to scare them um, and thinking, wait, like, why is the seller selling the business? Is there something wrong? I would say like hold off as long until like, first of all, there's no need for anyone to know unless there's something that's really clear, uh, you know, yeah, that the seller it knows like that the buyer is going to yeah. buy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And then so I would also say that have that conversation with the buyer, like if you want to have a delay or like to take into account how long you have between the purchase agreement or the LOI being signed and closing, because at that point, you know that something has been solidified and you want to give some notice to your employees to maybe perhaps find a new job or rearrange things for them. Exactly. That might be a good spot. Yeah. One of the things that I've done uh, related to that is for my key employees, for my leaders, once I've told them, I've also told them and I'm, and, and I've got a retention bonus for you. So if you'll stay through Mm. the transition or if you'll stay with us until closing, I'm going to pay you X bonus as an incentive for staying with us and not jumping ship right away. Yeah. Um, Because again, I can make no guarantees that the new owner is going to keep you unless we agree to some kind of employment contract, which is, which is not ideal. All right, let's, I want to go back to the LOI for a second, because one of the things I wanted to clarify as well, in my experience and every LOI that I've ever signed purposely is a non-binding LOI is, but it doesn't have to be, but what are your thoughts on that is whether an LOI should or shouldn't be binding. Talk to me about your experience there. Um, so yeah, all of our, uh, I mean, in general, I like that. Well, so LOI itself, um, the, the aspect of whether the parties need to move forward and close, that's non-binding, but there are elements in the LOI that can be binding such as, you know, the confidentiality if it's rolled Mm -hmm. in there. I like to also, especially on the buy side, put a no shop clause, uh, basically so that the seller doesn't go and um, sell the business to someone else while the buyer is doing their due diligence or taking care of the financing. Um, Sometimes the seller wants some escrow in um, in exchange for that no shop clause, which is reasonable. Um, And so, and so that's something, so that would be binding. Mm -hmm. Um, We did have one situation where, um, the parties, um, the, they used a broker, and I guess their template was actually binding. It was basically a purchase <laughs> agreement, even though it was called a letter of intent. Ooh. And it just made things so much more complicated because as we were doing due diligence or as we got closer 
closing, one, it really hurt the timeline because when people think LOI, they think, okay, non-binding, we have time. But mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you're like bound by this agreement and you you know might right. not have all your ducks in a row. So ideally I would put, you know, have the LOI to be non-binding except for that or like those parts that I uh, spoke about. Right. Just yeah. because it gives people breathing room and it doesn't stress anyone out. And then Absolutely. You know, and then people, then uh, the pushback, I guess I'm doing, well, what's the point of the LOI? In my experience, and I'd like to get your thoughts. Yeah. There are a couple benefits to the LOI, primarily as a negotiation tool. First of all, it formalizes that I am interested in your business. Here are the the yeah. you know the general aspects of how I'm what I'm looking to do. I want to purchase your assets, et cetera, et cetera. I want to you know inspect records, whatever it might be. I probably am sharing general terms. You know the proposed purchase yeah. price, proposed terms, whether you're taking a seller's note, those kind of high level terms. I'm kind of putting that on the table, and it's a level of acceptance that yeah, these terms generally speaking, are acceptable to be further negotiated later. So it formalizes that. And I think it helps as a negotiation tool, I think for both sides, really. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's really important. It forces, I mean, so if, like if someone has a good guide, like a good lawyer or a good broker, it, it forces the parties to have a conversation very early on what their deal breakers are. Um, and that's one of the, like the first questions that I ask my client, like, what are your deal breakers? Let's put that in the LOI, because if the parties know exactly um, what those deal breakers are, then there won't be any surprises or any loss of goodwill as um, the parties negotiate or get close to closing. For smaller deals or if a deal needs to move quickly, you may be able to skip the LOI. I mean, you can always skip the LOI phase, but sure. but if there's like multiple offers or if it's a really high demand business, an LOI is a great tool um, to use uh, for the seller to figure out who um, who is serious, especially if they are asking for escrow in combination with the LOI. And then same for the, um, and then, yeah, so I, I think it's a great tool. Yeah, yeah. but I, I love that, that perspective of, what are the deal breakers? So if for me as the buyer, it's a deal breaker that you're not going to take a seller's note, this gives us an opportunity to to either decide that or not, or we'll move on, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then it could be that I still think I might be able to negotiate or convince you, but likely, at least I know this is something you will not consider at all. And that could be a showstopper for me as a buyer. Yeah. <laughs> we don't like we've seen situations where like, closer to closing or even close to a purchase agreement, someone brings up a deal breaker and it oh, just sure. really sours the deal yeah. and people start to lose trust. Um, yeah. I mean, know, I've had other, it done to so, me yeah. by a seller as a, as a negotiation ploy. And that is, uh, that's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I do not it is terrible, but it happens. Stars. All right. So from an attorney, you know, the, the pushback of course, always that I hear and the hesitancy, I think for a lot of, uh, people looking to buy a small business or looking to sell their businesses. Boy, I don't want to incur the cost of an attorney. Secondly, although I don't hear it as much of an issue as I don't want a, an attorney killing the deal, right? <laughs> that's always I hear that the from fear. the brokers more than the Yeah, client. that's true. That's true. Yeah. When ideally, when should I engage an attorney in this process ideally? I mean, ideally early on, at least at least know when it would be good for your specific deal, because every deal is different. The timeline is different because what's happened to me sometimes um, as the attorney is that my client has come to me after signing the LOI um, and they put a really short 
uh, closing date. And it would, it just made it hard for me as the attorney to actually represent my client. I mean, we were able to get it done, but it was very stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, the deal actually did not go through anyway. So I guess it was a new point, but it was still very <laughs> stressful. Um, and then it's harder to negotiate um, once a document has been signed. And so to, you don't want to put your attorney in that position because it will jeopardize your deal. Um, and then sometimes also with like the bulk sales aspect, I, I mean, people come to me, they've signed everything, but they don't know that, that like they should file a bulk sales notice. And sometimes the statutes actually have laws around when it should be filed before closing date. Um, and so that just give, I mean, it just puts everyone in, in a more difficult perspective and you lose leverage, um, you know, on either side. Um, so I would yeah. say the earlier, the better, even if you don't fully engage the lawyer. As far as the fee, um, I like to consider it more and like sometimes, um, so the pushback that I get sometimes is, oh, this is only like a hundred thousand dollar deal. Right. Exactly. Um, it's a small deal. Spend- it's a small, yeah, you know, small it, um, it doesn't make sense for me to spend all this money on legal fees. Yeah. But then I'm like, well, it's not so much on the size of the deal, but like the risk, because if something were to go wrong or that, you know, the, these pro se people did not do it correctly, then, um, you know, usually the buyer is the one stuck holding the bag. So even if it was a small deal, it doesn't mean that your liability is that small. And it doesn't mean that if you had to sue the seller for your rights, that it would cost less than that. I mean, I've seen people out, excuse me, like, like I've seen people out litigate the value of, mm-hmm. you know, the claim all the time, you know, people will spend, uh, you know, $80,000 for a $40,000 deal just because there are other issues happening or um sometimes it's just ego and so and so i I would say just um you don't want you don't want to do the deal incorrectly if there's taxes involved you know i mean how much are those taxes if a seller has not paid and as we know that it does transfer to a buyer Mm -hmm. um and it may be what they owe and and penalties it could be huge yeah yeah i mean it would be it, it could be more expensive than an attorney and yeah. then, and then, like the stress, the stress of having to deal with this, this, or like this business that now has no value, or is just the stress of like, okay, like what do I do with these assets? Um, and now I have this liability on top of that, and it's just, it's not worth it. And I've seen people come to me after the fact, and you know, I, we have such limited options at this point because the yeah. deal has been done, the seller moved, whatever, you know. Yeah, so yeah, I would say it is worth the money. I agree. I agree. That's my position, but you know, wanted to get it from your yeah. perspective. One other yeah. uh, question related to this, and then we'll we'll start to wrap it up. But yeah. I always get the question as well: is who should incur the cost of drafting the initial contract? Right now, my 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 position has always been that depending on whether I'm the buyer or the seller, I, I want to be the one that drafts it because it'll it's more likely that it's to my advantage. But that's just the yeah. way I think about it. But but is there a general practice or does it vary state by state? Obviously, there's no law on this, but what's right. customary here and what's recommended as to who incurs the cost of drafting it? And then, of course, we talked about, because that's another point of confusion. I've had a situation, for example, where we have one attorney that represents all of us as partners in that case. Right. And that attorney, of course, has to make it clear that he's representing the best interest of the business not us individually but let me break that down because i that was a compound question there yeah who how should i look at who incurs the cost of drafting the contract um so customarily it's the buyer the like the buyer's counsel now now i mean if a buyer has leverage sometimes they can ask the seller to um to compensate them for um 
those fees. I don't see that really too often, but it is usually the buyer. Excuse me, like it's expected that the buyer drafts. So when I'm okay. on the seller side, I I double check with the buyer first um, if they're going to draft. And usually yeah. as a buyer, like we, you know, like we start that process pretty quickly. And I think the reason is, I mean, like from a from a logistical point of view, it makes sense because the buyer is incurring the risk. Um, and so they probably want to start off with like how to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes the sellers want to, for that same reason, but I think that in general, the buyer is probably incurring more long-term risk. Um, okay. so that's kind of the longer answer to your question. Okay. That makes sense. The other point of confusion I want to come back to is uh, I'll put it in a different scenario. Sure. I can, I've seen people get confused with, well, the seller has an attorney and they're going to take care of it. So I don't need my attorney. Explain why that's potentially a mistake. Oh, because the seller is going to do what, I mean, the seller's lawyer is going to do what's best for the seller. They don't really care about the buyer, you know, the buyer's needs. So if you want something like a holdback, I mean, the seller is not going to suggest that to you. They're going to want to take all their money. Um, they're going to, um, the seller's attorney is going to put the least amount of indemnifications and representations. And so I think that's a terrible move. Uh, I don't know why people think that an attorney would represent both sides, but yeah, definitely. I mean, as a buyer, definitely, yeah, get their own lawyer to review yeah. and negotiate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there anything else that comes to mind that we didn't talk about? That's a big one that you're like, Oh, Henry didn't ask me, or we should have talked about. I see no, this I as think... a common mistake, or did we cover most of them? Uh, no, from a legal perspective, I yes, think that's, uh, that's pretty comprehensive. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about your services, the type of clients that you work with. Obviously I mentioned, a couple of things in the bio, but just recap for us. What is it that you specialize in and what is the right type of potential client that should reach out to you? Yeah. So anyone who likes to make deals, I like to see myself as a, as a deal maker, not a deal breaker. So I'm the <laughs> lawyer. Uh, I'm the good lawyer who wants to come or who helps you when you want to grow your business or if you want to exit, you want to make that big, uh, you know, retirement move. Uh, so I'm the lawyer that people are usually excited or at least not so sad to call. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so transactions, um, I used to do some litigation and I found um, that I just was not providing or I could not provide the value that I was hoping to for those smaller businesses. And those are some pretty sizable businesses just because um, how, how expensive and how stressful a lawsuit is. Yeah. And it's just so much more efficient and, and, um, and, and lack of stress to do things right the first time. So that if you're ever in court, you're protected or you just like uh, take that out of the picture altogether. Right. Um, so, I mean, the last thing you want to do is kill your livelihood over something that could have been, and I see this all the time, something small just turns into hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees and years of stress over honestly something that's just so minor um so in that sense i like to um uh so so we help clients with mergers acquisitions and franchises um contract negotiations and all the types of contracts that are involved so like lease agreements employment agreements and all of those um we practice in two states here um you know in the state of illinois and florida um and that's pretty much sums it up you know yeah, we're like what... a small you know ahead, um, like budding boutique Boutique firm, yeah. Uh, yeah. Where do we go online to learn more? So it's motivalaw.com. And I got a blog that's pretty up to date. We um, You can also see my YouTube channel, which is also on my website. Um, it's youtube.com slash motivabusinesslaw. Uh, and there's a ton of great information to learn about me and my firm and also my practice areas and just a lot of great information. 
Excellent. We'll have a, a link yeah. to uh, the website as well on the show notes page for this episode. So if you don't have a, you're not where you can write that down, just go to the howbusiness.com, look for this episode with Danya, and I'll have a link to that as well. Uh, I'm always looking for a book recommendation. Is there a book that you would recommend? Yeah. So um, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. Um, it's not a legal book, but it really, for, for me, it's really opened my eyes to what a habit is. I mean, so the, the, so the book starts with a story about a man who had brain surgery and and the, the point of that uh antidote was that even his emotions were habits and so i think as entrepreneurs business owners um sometimes our reactions our uh sadness our fears are actually habits and if we just stop and pause and understand how a habit is formed and why we why we take certain actions and why we, why we react, then we can actually have more control and train ourselves to make better decisions, to slow down, um, to be more at peace. So I, I thought that was a great book. Yep. That's a great one. Thank you for that recommendation. I'll have a link to it okay. on the show notes page as well. All right, Danya, we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Um, I always like to summarize it with, with a key takeaway of this conversation that we've had about legal considerations. We did look at it mostly from a buyer's perspective, but either way, Summarize for us the takeaway that you want us to take about the legal side or legal ramifications or implications or considerations is probably the better word of yeah. buying or selling a business. Just don't risk trying to do it on your own. <laughs> I know it might seem um, obvious at this point in the conversation, um, but there are so many people who have done what you've done um, as someone who's buying a business and, um, and, uh, and like engaging people who have done it before, you can use their expertise um, to avoid mistakes rather than making mistakes. So just just at least at least talk to a lawyer, at least have a consultation and have them like walk you through the main mistakes. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> All right, and tell us again what the website is. It's motivalaw.com. Uh, so it's M-O-T-V as in Victor, A-Law.com. Perfect. Excellent. Danya, great conversation. Thanks for all of these insights. It's always it's always tricky because I'm asking you to give me answers, and but it depends, right, as an attorney. Yeah. <laughs> so I appreciate you sharing these general uh, guidance and tips and advice and experiences. Again, you must get your own attorney, and it's critical. I think it's critical. It's what I advise to every single one of my clients is looking to buy or sell a business. I think uh, if I had to summarize it as to that point, the key takeaways which you spoke to to, to save a little bit of money now, relatively speaking, for what it might cost you, not to mention the peace of mind that you have avoided all of the obvious mistakes or issues that could come down later, that is well worth the investment. You know? Yep. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This is Henry Lopez, and thanks to all of you for joining me for this episode of The How of Business. My guest again today was Danya Shackfey. And I release episodes every Monday morning. You can find the show anywhere you listen to podcasts, including at my YouTube channel, the How of Business YouTube channel, and the website, thehowofbusiness.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.